You're listening to a DM podcast. G'day guys, welcome to the final episode of 2020, episode 205 with English Super League legend Dennis Betts. But before we get to Dennis, just want to say a massive thank you to everyone that's tuned in the show and helped me spread the word on the podcast as well. Couldn't have done it without you, so thank you very much. We'll be back bigger and better in February 2021, but in the meantime, you all, all everyone out there, you guys have a great Christmas and a big happy new year as well. And looking forward to bringing you some some great new episodes in 2021. So I just want to announce also, I'm going to be starting a second podcast. It's going to be called Talking League. So that'll be starting off in February. It's going to be all about kind of tipping and majority of it on NRL fantasy. So if you want to, you know, regular kind of talk about rugby league, I've got two of my good mates, Josh and Andy, joining me on the crew and some weekly guests, including Dane Clark from Clarkie's Rugby League column and also the GOAT, Jeremy Lattimore. There's going to be also some other guests I'm trying to lock in. I've done a pre-season analysis with the NRL physio, so hopefully he can jump on from time to time as well. But we're starting at the moment before the podcast actually drops in February. Jump on the Instagram page at Talking League Pod and... You can get daily player analysis and also team analysis. So there's plenty on there already. But if you can do me a favor and you do want to listen to the new show, jump on the new. I have uploaded it into both pretty much all the the different podcast apps. So definitely Apple and also Spotify. Just search Talking League or I've got links in the episode notes below. So that should be a good show. It's going to be Wednesday, no, sorry, Tuesday night. And it's going to be a more punchy show. It's about 35, 40 minutes. And then we'll also do a Thursday show where we've got the late mail and also Jeremy's tips for the week. In that, and also want to spread this onto the Talking with TK family as well. I'm going to be having a tipping and fantasy comp where a winner takes all $500 cash prize, which will be free to enter. So there will be more details on both the Instagram page, that's Talking League Pod, and also the online www.talkingleaguepod.com. But yeah, just jump on. It's free to subscribe on all your podcast apps as well. So do me a massive favor. Give it a crack and always open for feedback. But that first episode should drop at the same time as Talking with TK, which will continue in its regular spot on a Monday. So yeah, get involved and would love to yeah, for, for you to be involved. So definitely get involved, like I said, February. But in the meantime, I am going to start recording more episodes for Talking with TK. I've actually got a couple in person, which is fantastic, on just before Christmas. So a couple of big legends coming on the show. So stay tuned for that. And any requests, please send them through on social media. Or drop me an email at tristan at talkingwithtk.com. All right, guys, last episode for the year. Let's get cracking. And let's introduce the legend, Dennis Betts. All right, guys, my special guest today is Dennis Betts. Dennis is a legend of rugby league. He did it all in his career in England. He won numerous league titles, championships, challenged cups with Wigan. He also won a Lance Todd trophy in 1991, a Man of Steel in 1995. He's played in Australia for the New Zealand Warriors, or the Auckland Warriors, between 1995 and 1997. He's also been a regular representative of both England and Great Britain. He 
He also had the honour of captaincy, captaining his country in the World Cup final in 1995. Post-footy, Dennis has had many notable positions in coaching. He's been the head coach at Wigan and Witness and also the assistant coach of English, the English national team and also Gloucester Rugby Union. Welcome to the podcast, Dennis Betts. Dennis, Hi, welcome, mate. buddy. How are you? Going good, mate. Thanks for stopping by the podcast, mate. Really pleasure to get a legend on the show like yourself, bud. I know I've well, you've done plenty of those, mate. I've, I've seen some of your stuff. I say, it's been some pretty fantastic players been on your podcast. No, so it's, it's nice to join, man. Yeah, I love having the English boys on, especially as well. But Dennis, let's break it down from the start because every story, story has a beginning. Now I know that you're Salford, born and raised. So tell me a little bit about the Betts family and growing up in in Salford, man. Well, um, pretty tough upbringing, really. Like um, single parent family. Well, I wasn't a single parent family. My dad was around, but he wasn't around. Mm. It was, I say, it's not. It was quite an abusive childhood. He was quite an abusive father. Yeah, um, and it was pretty tough. Yeah, it was. Salford wasn't. It wasn't on one of those go-to places. I don't think you'd have to want to, unless you were driving through it. You wouldn't really. You wouldn't really go there yeah. at that stage. So it was. It was a tough upbringing. I was mainly football. I lived um, just about about. 20 minutes walk from Old Trafford. Yeah. So I used to go, I was one of those kids that used to mine cars on a Saturday, go down and, and then <laughs> sneak in before, when you, when you were, when you were able to, when it was all standing and you had the Stretford end, which was a, a terraced end at that stage. And you could sneak in through, before it was all digitalized, you could actually climb over yeah. or find a way of sneaking into one of these big football grounds. So I snuck into Old Trafford when I was a kid. What's my United, Manchester United fan for my sins. So yeah, I was mainly a footballer growing up, and I just fell in. I fell into rugby league because of a, as most people do, because of a teacher at school. Yeah, and he put he put me to a trial, and I was a big athletic kid, and it just seemed to be the sport that I took to. I was, but it was something I did on the side. I was mainly interested in in football. Okay, as I was growing up, so it's pretty. Me, I had a brother, um, very similar age, eleven months younger than I am. He was the I, we're both in the same year at school. Okay. He was he was the youngest in the year. I was the I was the, the oldest fourth quartile, <laughs> as they like to talk about. Now I was a September child, so I was always a little bit ahead. So he was. I think he was four days from being in the year below at school, which would have made him a superstar of his age group because he was big and he was strong. And he, but he always, he just missed out on a lot of stuff on trials and making teams. And I was always in that the team and dog. captain that side. But there was real competitive. Like I say, he's my best mate now, and and. But growing up, we had like we clashed heads, we banged heads, we used to fight all the time, and it was it was quite a competitive environment with a brother that was um, pretty good at sport as well. Yeah, Dennis. Before we go on to that, just Manchester United. Who was your favourite player growing up? Oh, um, I, a fellow called Joe Jordan who played okay. there as well. Like some big, I, I was a centre forward. Yeah, for my sins scored goals, and but not the skillful type, not the beater player kind of type. I was. Where I probably find to rugby league, I was that kind of hold the ball up, keep people off me, elbow people in the face, bang into people, jump in. So I was a pretty rough and tough kind of footballer. But like I said, the Manchester United era that I had, like I say, there was a fellow called Gary Bertles that played there well. And then Brian Robson was the captain at the time. So like those kind of players at that era that that played. And I, I, I always wanted to be not like a normal white side. I don't know if you know Norman Whiteside. He played at Manchester United and scored some fantastic goals. We're really skillful, but 
thankfully for me and for rugby league, I was. The one thing about football that you need is you need talent. And I, I had just pure determination when I played football. So that sort of dropped away. And I was I was a pretty good schoolboy footballer for my time. And you probably said that because I, um, I actually represented Manchester United's B team. I uh, played it for Manchester United Reserves at the time. Um, well, it was like an under-21s at that stage. Yeah. So I was a good schoolboy footballer. Got through England trials to a certain stage of uh, my schoolboy football. And came to a point in my career where at 16 years of age, I was offered um, I was offered a YTS, a youth training scheme, yep. which wasn't really an apprenticeship. So football teams take on apprentices. They're only allowed 15 apprentices, first year and second year, so six, eight, or seven and eight, depending on which year and yep. what the real quality players are and what age group. And I didn't get the apprenticeship that I thought I might get. But luckily for me, I played for England in rugby league at schoolboy level at that stage. Yep. And I got a couple of um, invitations to go and meet boards and see if I could. I wanted to sign as a professional rugby league player. Yeah, mate. Ryan Giggs is a noted rugby league fan. Did you ever have anything to do with him when you when you were in professional? Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah, I know Ryan really well. Like I say, he's a Salford kid as well. Yeah, he's from. He's a few years younger than I am. Um, but I'd like I say connections through lads that I played football with. He's from a small part of. Salford called Booth's Town, and I played with lads that played for that area, and they knew Ryan. And well, Ryan, Ryan's dad, Ryan, Ryan's dad was Danny Wilson. He played, he played for Wales in rugby league. Okay, so that's where Ryan's connection came from, and they, they moved up to this part of the world when he went. And, his dad went and played for Swinton. Okay, so they split up, and I think the story's pretty there. But yeah, yeah, I know Ryan really well, and I know a lot of Ryan's friends. Nice one. Now, mate, just one thing I want to ask you about was. You know, what, what, just watching a few highlights of you last night because tomorrow I've got a guy called Lee Oden Ryan on. He's the guy that beat chariots in that race. <laughs> Remember him? Yeah. Anyway, it's, it's, it's fake. That it's a fake race. That you can tell him from me as well, mate. What what happened? Well. You know what? Behind the scenes, what happened? Well, I played with Lee. Lee played at Walker Warriors when I was there. He came to oh, that's Lee. right. He, he did was, too. Yeah. Yeah, I played play with Lee. I know Lee really well. He's a fantastic bloke. I love. He's infectious. He's funny. He was. Um, it was great to be around. Uh, we turned, like I say, Lee can take the glory on this as well because he did actually win the race. He won the race. <laughs> we got stuck in traffic outside. I think it was, I think it was a Paramount Stadium as well. It was when yeah, it was. the race was run. We played Paramount that night. We got stuck in traffic. We got to the ground really late. And Martin, Martin was always like that as well. Like so, there was some money on the line, and he was going to get, he was going to get paid whether win or win or lose. And Martin didn't care. So, but we turned up. He had no warm up. He put his boots on, put his shorts on, went out and ran the race straight away, Martin, because we'd turned up to the ground late. So he wasn't ready for it. Lee had been out there for about two hours getting ready for this race. <laughs> and so it was, yeah, it was Martin turned up and, I, and they ran the race. But we were late to the ground and it was a straight foot race. Martin Afire is exceptionally quick. Mm. Very, very quick. Lee Oldman is exceptionally quick. The difference between the two of them and I don't know if Leo can agree with this is Martin is one of the greatest rugby league players that's ever played. Yeah. And that doesn't have, he doesn't have to be quick. He just has to know how to use his pace mm. to score tries, to beat people. You watch Martin Apias highlights and it's one of the greatest set of tries that anybody's but, ever seen. But Dennis, he, he owes you a little bit, mate. The amount of tries, because you both played on that left edge, you put it, you put him over for a few tries there. Oh, I did, yeah, as well, yeah. I, I, I 
I was always, he always says that I didn't pass to him enough because I like to score a try myself. So he was, he was always a bit greedy about that kind of stuff. But Martin was, so I think on that night, and you can might have the stats in front of you. So Lee beat him in the 100 metre race or the full length of the field race. Yep. I think Martin scored a hat trick that night against Lee. Yeah, he did. So you can, you can understand yeah. who, who was the winner in that game. <laughs> so Martin of Fire is an exceptional. And what Martin, they don't give Martin a lot of credit for, he was really tough. He could beat a man. He could create space. He was a very good rugby league player, exceptionally. He wasn't just quick. He was exceptionally quick, but I think the record speaks for itself. He can score He can score tries. Yeah, so back to my, what my original question was going to be. It was going to be about your style because, you know, as you know, the game of rugby leagues evolved so much from when you debuted in the mid-'80s to then when you finished in the mid-2000s. But for yourself, a wide-running second rower with speed and a little bit of – with a little bit of, you know, you could you play on both sides and you could play 80 minutes, which was big. Yeah. You and kind of Bradley Clyde, because Bradley Clyde used to play on the other side. He used to play kind of more right side. But you guys used to be very, very similar in kind of what you brought. And it's kind of what we see now in an edge second rower slash ball player, like someone like a Wade Graham. You were a little bit kind of, yeah. before your time, have well, you ever thought like about that? that? Well, yeah, a little bit, hopefully. Again, I, I mentioned me in the same word as Bradley. I think Bradley was one of the greatest players I ever I had the privilege to play against and, mm. and know. Like I said, Brad was an exceptionally talented player. Um, great engine, could play, say, first back every time the ball needed carrying off a, a kick return, mm. able to make tackles that nobody would make, covering everybody else's ass. And I just, one of the things I was as a back row, my responsibility was always to protect the bloke inside me and outside me. And I had Joe Lydon outside me for quite a number of years. Yep. And Joe never did any tackling, so it was always that one that I had to do all his work for him. So <laughs> he's got a lot of appreciation for me at the moment, Joe. So he knows that I did all, I did all his work defensively. But the, as you coach and kind of stuff, like say, it's that kind of understanding who's inside you, who's outside you, being able to hit a good line. My, my like say, I started out as as a, a good schoolboy that was quick and could and could beat a player. As I evolved into a professional league player under Graham Lowe and John Mone, yep. then I drifted to those edges and liked to run off like a Sean Edwards, uh, Andy Gregory, Fran Botica, those kind of players that could create a little bit of space and fix somebody and I could hit a good line to be able to to make a line break. Yeah, you know, my, my work, my, my life was always built on a fact of like, I mentioned Brad was that kind of stuff, whereas I'd go into a competition and knowing that you might be as good as me, but can you do it as hard as I can do it for as long as I can do it? It was that kind of mentality that we go toe-to-toe and I'd like to think that I was fit enough and strong enough to be able to get over the top of you eventually. Yeah, Dennis, how much do you put that down to your childhood? I've done lots of work on resilience and lots of work on like character building through where I've, I've, I've got friends that have gone off and been and gone to prison. I've got friends that are, are no longer with us because of, but they had the same childhood. They made some choices. Mm. I I had a choice and I was very fortunate that I had some good people around me. My childhood made me determined. That's It could have been determined to be something completely different to what I became. I had a lot of, a lot of love and a lot of respect for my mother. I didn't want to disappoint her. Yeah. Same with my brother. And I had, I had a good support network in my other family. My grandparents were really supportive. And I fell into it really well. I got When I ended up at Wigan, I ended up with some good school teachers. Yeah. 
like I say, even though it was just gives you good direction, met some nice people. The, the football, the football gave me gave me an insight into some nice families. Mm. And my mother didn't drive, so I had friends that would come and pick me up that didn't live close by, and so I had a nice network of people, some good people that made me want to try and and be a little bit more than was on offer. Yeah. So did it make me who I was? I don't know. I, I can admit I made some good choices, but I also had some good support networks. Okay. Dennis, what age were you when you signed with Wigan? And before you signed with Wigan, had you been to any professional games and watched them play? Not really, no. Um, I'd been to Salford a couple of times with one of school teachers, so that would have been early 80s. Okay. Um, and to be totally honest with you, I'll tell you, I signed for Wigan when I was 16 years of age. Mm-hmm. I made my debut as a full-time professional for Wigan when I was 16 in a cup game. So I played, I'd say, and I'd never been coached properly until I turned professional. I used to, I had a, a gentleman used to pick me up on a Sunday morning, take me to play for a team called Lee Rangers, okay. which is now Lee Rangers Miners and amateur side. At least about 20 miles away from Salford, which seemed like to a, a 13 year old kid, seemed like the other side of the world. 20 yeah. miles was a long way it in is. the early 80s. Yeah. So I, I had no, like I said, no support network in drivers. My dad never took me to anywhere. My mum couldn't drive. So this fella called um, Kevin Devine, his, his son played for the team. His son went on to play for, play for St. Helens as yep. well, uh, called Sean Devine. And he came on a Sunday morning, picked me up, took me to Lee. I played, I got in his car, he dropped me back off and I saw him the following Sunday. That went on for three years. That's all my contact with rugby league. Yeah. I played football on a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I played football on a Saturday morning. I played rugby league on a Saturday afternoon, or for Sunday afternoon. And that was it. Schools didn't play rugby because there was a strike on when I was growing up. Yeah. So I just had a good sports teacher that was rugby league in his, uh, in his background. And he used to push me to trials for... Lancashire, which like is like the New South Wales trials or regional trials. So when they came up, I just got a letter saying, go to this trial. So I turned up, no education in rugby, no real understanding of it, and just made the team. Wow. So that, that would have been a pretty good start because Wigan at that stage, and then even sort of now, they are the glamour club. They had money, supporters, even us in Australia, we knew who Wigan was. So was that an advantage, not knowing about at, at them being glad? At that stage, it wasn't really like that as well. Like I say, I signed for what I call Colin Clark yeah, or uh, Wilf McGuinness. By the time I came back for, to start pre-season, so I signed the contract, I met Colin Clark, who's Phil Clark's dad. Yeah. He was the coach of Wigan at that time. Had a chat with him as a young kid mm. after I'd met the board. And by the time I came back to start as a pre-season, Graham Law was the coach. So, and that was uh, Maurice Lindsay and the board at that time had decided that they wanted to make a quite a drastic change. And Colin Clark had done really well. He'd taken the tie to um, Challenge Cup final, and yeah. won a Challenge Cup final. They never really, they didn't really do that well in the league, but they just started to make some big inroads. I think they'd signed Ellery Hanley. They'd looked at bringing Joe Lydon in. Andy Gregory was on the card to sign. So they were starting to build something. But it was a club that was just on the on the cusp of what was next. And I think Graham Lowe was a, a massive indicator to that where he came over from Manly mm. working with the New Zealand national side and instilled something in that t- team that took it on to another level. Like I said, and then John Morney grabbed that mantle yeah. and, and ran with it after Graham Lowe had started it all off. But we became determined 
like I said, the game was at that stage. Like I say a back row wasn't fixed in. I, I like centers weren't really fixed. It was a bit rugby yeah, you where you, you played both yeah. sides. You yeah. just moved around and you just did what, and you end up somewhere helping somebody out defensively. So I would always try and get on the best plays because it was really play orientated as well. So you'd find a point to put a big play on. So you were fighting with, I was fighting with Andy Goodway, Ellery Handler to try and be the one that hit that line to get all the glory out of the big plays. So it was, a, that was my introduction to trying to make that side. They had this influx of players that had a real desire to be successful. And it wasn't, a, it wasn't a drinking culture. It wasn't a social culture. They didn't, we didn't spend a lot of time together. People don't understand. So when I talk about women's side is they had certain people that spent time with each other mm. and I'm really good friends with everybody that was part of that era that I grew up with, but it wasn't a big social culture. We didn't spend lots of time together with each other's families. We didn't spend a lot of time together, like being this really tight knit unit. We turned up, we knew what was expected of us on a training night. We trained really hard. If you didn't train hard on a Tuesday night, you weren't looking to get selected for the game on the weekend. So you had to pull out and make sure you trained on a Tuesday. Yeah. And the, de- the demands that were put on from the players that I was starting with, which was your Andy Goodways and your Ellery Hamleys, like I say, they, they were great blogs, but they had that switch in their head that was like, this is this is important. This, is, this means something. And that's where my real understanding came from like I was determined anyway and I wanted to be successful but it was that kind of wow like when I look through that side and talk about like Sean Edwards Andy Goodway Ellery Hamley Dean Bell Steve Hampson yeah like Martin Fire. it was that kind of Team Miles came in there as well and played yeah. a little bit at the time so it was a pretty uh, pretty determined group players yeah that that culture you just described where you didn't really hang up too much off the field drinking and all that sort of stuff was that spread across the entire time that you were at and even when you came back no it was the evolution or how sport has evolved because when i first joined i signed as a professional sportsman at 16 years of age Mm. The word professional should have really been on that contract because I trained on a Tuesday night, Thursday night, Saturday morning. I mean, it's like I was at college at the time. I'd get on a bus. I'd have to get to training from Salford and run into training. It was like it was it was just a mishmash of stuff. There was no set um, weight days. You didn't do any speed training. You didn't yeah. do any kind of real conditioning elements. You trained on a Tuesday. You ran out. You practiced your plays, mm. and then you you played. And that was what. I was really fortunate and I think I was in this country especially I sort of took it on and on the back of an Ellery Hanley and an Andy Goodway they used to do stuff on their own so they were they might, Ellery, I don't think Ellery had a job but Andy had a job at mm. that stage and but he'd find time to make sure he was in the gym at a certain time and get nutrition advice so this was 1986 and he was he was working hard on his nutrition he was making sure his diet was supplemented. He was weight training a certain way. He was doing hill work. He was doing power speed, sprint work. He was doing interval training. Yep. So it was that. And I was fortunate to, again, I, the people that I fell in with, the, the biggest mentor that I had at that stage was was Andy Goodway. Yep. He was very driven and very, he was angry with life. Like I say, I, I didn't take that part on him, but he was quite an angry <laughs> bog. But we just clicked. And I jumped on the back of him and like I said, there was no shortcuts. Everything was done hard it was done as well as you could do it and that then supplemented 
how well the team function, how well you do in that team. Yeah. And I climbed into that team on the back of them, those kind of efforts. It wasn't something built on natural ability. There was lots of good players of my age group and there was lots of talented kids that just fell away because they fell into the culture of what professional sports sport it was there where you turned up on a Tuesday night and you did training. You might have done a little bit of weights before, but there was no real somebody to tell you to do it. You turned up on a Thursday, you lived a little bit on talent and your natural physical um, ability at that stage. But I was then able to go climb over a lot of those people because I was in the gym on a Monday. I was doing some work on a Monday night. I was at training early on a Tuesday. I fell in with a fellow called Bill Hartley, yep. which was through Andy Goodway as well, which was he ended up being a conditioner. He was a Commonwealth Games forum. And we did some sprint work. We did some interval work. We did some technique, running technique work. So that back row, I'd be able to get him to clear out to run and run quick while carrying a ball. Nobody ever taught me that, but Bill implemented some drills in that. So I was starting to, and then on the back of that, Phil Clark's and McCassidy's, a couple of those lads jumped onto that before the game went fully professional in about 90, early 90s, 91, 92. Yeah. Dennis, you know, after all this, you know, you're learning to be a professional from Andy Goodway and things like that in Ellery. What at what stage of your career did you like kind of feel like you were a first grader? Um, I got invited into the changing room. I had already played about 50, 60 games. I played in a couple of finals. Yeah. I was still getting changed in the um, in the reserve grade changing room. Yeah, come. So it was like it was well because you had to be invited in, and it was one of those kind of everybody had their seats. So <laughs> the first team changing because we trained at the ground. Yeah. So we trained on the top field and we trained at the ground. So the the main changing room. So the first team changing rooms were it was just entrenched, like like you say you had. And Andy, Andy Goodway, Elroy Hamley, Andy Gregory, Sean Edwards, Joel Lydon, Dean Bell. They had that corner set. <laughs> so you were looking to try and get into this change rooms. And I was like 18, 19. And it was, you just had to be invited. So I get changed in the changing room, the, um, the way changing room with the lads that I'd grown up with that played in the reserves and in the, in the Colts and that. And then I'd come out and I'd join the first team and train with them, come back and go back in there. And it was like, I think it was Graham Law who said, like, get your stuff, come on. And you have to, but then you have to find that spot. And I'm like looking around, like, oh shit. So I end up being on this little corner. And it was, you know, I can't remember that exact moment where I felt like a first grader because, like I say, I was, I'd worked myself into a point where through a pre season one year, I'd, um, I was playing, I was in the side, I was a starting fixture. I remember that time when Graham Lowe said, come on, you need to get changed in here. And it was like, I was about 18 yeah, yeah. at that stage. And so you'd find it. I know it was a little tiny spot right next to the door where nobody really wanted as well. So people kept pushing past to getting into the kit room. And, but yeah, the, the, and those those kind of things, people talk about cultures now and trying to implement that kind of resilient culture and how it you have to be invited into some. And it's hard to implement now because professional sport is so different. Yeah, Like I said before, I... I there was no talent ID when I grew up. There was no like coaching elements and moving through grades or set systems where you get picked up at 13. You're given certain things to do when you're tested regular and you move through a system because that's what you do as a rugby player. I did everything. I was I was running for the city. I was I was playing cricket. I was no good at cricket, but I could <laughs> hit a ball. I was okay. I would just make a team. And it was that kind of stuff. So you're doing everything. And then all of a sudden, one day, somebody said, do you want to be a professional rugby player? I was like, 
Okay. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that was, that was, there's a really good story with that because the best piece of advice my father ever gave me, my dad was about, yeah. I was sat in the, um, sat in the boardroom. I had a tie. I had my English skills tie on. I was sat there. So in front of me, it was old school stuff. So he had the board. She had Jack Hilton, um, Jack Robert, Morris Lindsay, yep. um, Tom Rathbone. And they're all sat there. And Tom Rathbone's got a big glass of brandy and a cigar <laughs> sat behind his big old desk. And they're all talking to me about rugby league and who's great. And I've not got a clue who they're talking about. There's pictures on the walls everywhere, this big old boardroom. And they offered me five and a half thousand pounds, 16 years of age, yeah. kid from Salford to sign and this contract if you play this. So he basically signed your life away because there was no term on it, no fixed term. If I played 10 games, I got this. If I played 20 games, I got that. If I played for England, if I played for the Colts, English, Great Britain Colts, I got I got sums of money. Yeah. But there was no time limit on it. I could have taken me until I was like 45 years of age to fulfill this contract. But at that stage, there was nothing on there. But the big killer was like five and a half thousand pounds, like 1986. Came from a background, nobody had any money. Nobody knew what money was when I grew up, like I say. And my dad was about at that time and he'd come with us that, that day. And the one, and they left the, the boardroom. Left the, the board left. I let him think about it. So I'm sat there. My mum's on my right. My dad's on my left. Yeah. My dad leaned in and gave me the best piece of advice he'd ever given. Anyway, he leaned in and he went, "Fucking sign it." <laughs> 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 and that was how I became a professional rugby player. Yeah. So it's that. And but it's like the, that was that was the norm in those days. That you, you went up, young kid. They offered you a contract. They gave you a check. You went home, and that was it, mate. What what age were you when you first got your first manager? The first manager, yeah. Did, oh, did you have uh, a manager? Like my first manager, yeah. Uh, I met a gentleman called David McKnight who was just starting out as well. Yeah, and that would have been like yeah, ninety. Yeah, no, 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 even 91, 92, yeah. that kind of stuff. What was Morris, Morris Lindsay? Was he always fair with contracts? Was he a shrewd negotiator? Yeah, yeah, he was, he knew what people wanted. He was smart. He, like I say, he knew what he could get him for. He knew where the system was and he knew he had to pay a little bit more. Yeah. So I'd say he was always, it was one of those, he used to like to say that if, if I, if I leave the room a little bit unhappy because I give you too much, and you leave the room a little bit unhappy because you think you could have got more, and we're not far off. <laughs> so, so it was always that. And he was like, he liked, he liked theatrics. I remember one time he fell off. Um, I was there with my agent early like early 90s. So it's that kind of early 90s, and I'm just starting to play. I've come out of that old contract, and I'm starting. I played, I played, I'm still in that old contract. I've played for my country. I've, I've filled that contract up. I've done it in two or three years. Yep. Luckily, again, because of I just, one, I had a couple of injuries early on. But by the time I was 18, 19, I was playing every single week. I was playing for, um, I played English, um, Great Britain Colts, Great Britain under 21s. And then I made the, my debut when I was 19 for international side I got picked to go on tour in 1990 yep. so I'd fulfilled all this element in my contract so it was, the next step was like to get a term contract and then actually get a wage where you used to get paid weekly or and then you used to get paid like contracts be paid quarterly yep. so it wasn't so you got weekly match money and then you got your contract money either at the beginning of the season middle of the season at the end of the season 
I think it was the same in Australia for a long, long time. So it wasn't like it was a wage. You still had a job and you got paid monthly or you got paid weekly. But you got cash in hand for your games you played every week and then you got your your match money when they got all the gate money together and they delivered it out to all the players. But it just come to that stage where they were looking at, like say, mid early 90s, beginning of the 90s. Yep. And I was sat there and I went in with my agent and we talked and, and I asked, Morris for a sum of money and he fell off the couch. It was like some kind of theatrics. He's like, you're okay, you're okay. You're kidding out, you Dennis. And I, he didn't think the players, I know what everybody else had been in before and asked for as well. I've been talking to Andy Platt, who was actually negotiating as well. And he told me Morris had done exactly the same thing for him. So that kind of, Morris, Morris had this set part to where he'd fall off the couch and he felt he was off asking for too much. And, <laughs> Yeah, it was it was quite funny. It was quite funny. Dennis, you know, obviously your career is in three parts, you know, Wigan first, New Zealand, and then back to Wigan. But before you yeah. left, you were playing in the winter. You obviously got to play in Australia during our kind of mild sort of winter. And then obviously you came back and it was summer, summer league in, in yeah. rugby league. What was the difference between playing in England in the winter and, and summer? Well, I, I played – I had a little bit of something to do with that. I'd, I'd like to think of it when Morris Lindsay drove it as well. So they drove the, 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 the transition. And we couldn't catch up with Australians because they, they were just our, our summer season or our, our training season when we did all our conditioning. We didn't do lots of ball work at that stage. But when you're trying to play rugby league and, and enhance your skill level, then you have to do it at a certain a certain rate and you have to you have to play that way so you have to be competitive in that element and you can't be competitive in a training environment you have to take it a step further you can you can try to implement those levels of intensity in training but you're never mm. going to get that the same as you do in a game yeah our games are played from like like you say from October through till end of February March you couldn't run properly like say as, as a ball playing back rower or a line running back rower somebody wants to play on top of the field mm it just became harder and harder for me to be able to function the way I wanted to. Yeah. I had some good parts of the year, which were the early part in pre-season and then the last part. So when, my, it was when you warmer. see yeah. somebody, yeah, when it got warm and then you've got certain players, you couldn't feel your hands. How are you supposed to be good at being a ball player or pass the ball when you can't feel your hands? I mean, when you can't feel your toes, you're playing on top of a quagmire. So it was that kind of, as I was becoming, like say, in my early 20s and getting that point where I was Getting a bit of hair on my back and thinking I had something to say. That it doesn't help us. We're not getting. We're not catching up. We're not getting better. When you go into Featherstone, Old, and Castleford on a Wednesday night yeah. in February, and there's no, there's nothing green on the field. It's just white markings on a dark brown patch. Yeah. Like I say you, you run out and your studs are this long, so you can actually <laughs> grip. So it's that. It was that kind of mentality that we had. We had to do some something different. Mate, there, were, there would have been some eerie nights. Be there would have been some eerie, eerie nights at Oddsall Stadium in Central Park in the middle of winter with all the fog and all that sort of stuff. Well, I, like I said, the, the way to test the ground when you turn up to see if you could play is that if the referee can stand on the halfway line and see both sets of posts, then the game can go on. So you turn <laughs> up at Oddsall yeah. in the bowl nothing and you like say you drive into a cloud down you can't see a thing but the referee said it's on I say you sat in the stand and you can't see what's going on in the opposition's <laughs> 20 you don't know how far the, t- the posts are away 
I, I remember playing once and a lad called Dave Marshall who played on the wing for Wigan quite a few times. He makes a break out of our 20 and then you can't see him. So you don't know, you can't support him because you can't see him. He's on the right edge. He makes a break. You push through the middle and he disappears into a cloud. You don't know where he is. You don't know if he scored. <laughs> the referee can't know what's going on. The lines, we can't see it. Yeah. And that's the kind of thing. So, and, the, and once you'd started a game, it was really hard to call it off in those days. So I've played in games where it, it's been off. The referees turned up and said, no, you, you can't play on this because like, you it's a bit frozen in the grounds a bit like a little bit dangerous and mate next, and the next minute you've walked out the chairman's been there he's had a chat with the referee there's some of the crowds still evolving as well because these are like some of the big games on the in the winter months and through Christmas and the referee walks in and says yeah I've had second thoughts the game's on <laughs> you're like, how could it be off 10 minutes ago it's not defrosted in 10 minutes that's why <laughs> that was winter rugby like I said it, it had its place and it was it had its time at that that point in the game. But the the evolution of professional sport, as we've seen, is that they say it's it's not at fully artificial surfaces. It's but most most grounds in England now have got some element of artificial turf in them, whether it be two percent, one percent that holds it together because the number of games are on. You got games that are play, being played now on full four G surfaces. Mm. I say and, and the, like I say I think when I was coaching with this, we were the first team in this country. First team, I think, yeah, definitely in this country that ever played fully contact sport on a full artificial surface. Okay, and there was an element of doubt about it at the time, but it works really well, and you get you get a lot of usage, and the game looks completely different. It's it's it's, it's a game built for skill and built for speed, mm. which people want to see. But even some of the surfaces, like that you guys used to play in the eighties and nineties, even in Australia as well, with all dirt patches. You have a look at the Premier League and some of the Super League fields, even the NRL. You could sleep on the thing during the night. That's how bloody nice it looks. Yeah, again, it's no good looking back and saying that was it was better in those days. But it really wasn't. We had some we had some good times, and we had we had the cotton jerseys, mate, the full long sleeve. <laughs> I've got jerseys now. I didn't realise I was that big. It was that kind of stuff. I hold it up. It's like, wow. Parachute. <laughs> it's just like neck, neck things down there. It was a V as well. So V things come down there. It was like one of those T-shirts that people wear now with like cut all the way down into your chest. But yeah, it was, I've, like I say, I owe so much to that period of my career. And the reason that I played in a tide that had a fantastic coach and lots of very, very talented players. And we had a work ethic that made us something a little bit different. But we also had the humility to understand where we were. Yeah. And that was the one of the great things about that side. So you think about from 1989, 88, 89, through to 95. I played in that period before I left for the Auckland Warriors. We were the, the most winning team in the history of this yeah. in any sport in this competition we went and we won 27 trophies in that period it was it was an unbelievable period to be involved with and I, through that time I think the humility that we had within that group even though we had some egomaniac people involved yeah. it was the humility to understand that next year is a new challenge we've got to respect our point with that and next year is a new challenge I think that that's and that's what you see within all those great kind of organisations and those great players is the humility to yeah. to know that you can you're talented but also to understand that 
there's a lot that goes behind that talent that makes it makes it work. Yeah, some good insights. Now, Dennis, the first time I actually saw you play, I used to love waking up for the Kangaroo Tours. So 1990 was the first one at Wembley, game one, and you guys actually won. Yeah. And, it, and it kind of went like that for a little while because – you, you, guys, say, you say it like that, it's like it's some kind of strange thing. We actually won. <laughs> no, because like for people that are younger than me, like they don't realise how tight, like 90, 92, 94, it was 2-1. But 90 especially, like when you think game two, that Cliff Lyons try from E.T.'s kick, you know, uh, Ricky Stewart and Mal Meninga running the length of the field. Like these are little moments that if they don't happen, you guys win that series easily. So uh, – we. We should win that game at Old Trafford. I say it was that kind of Lee Jackson still burning into my head. Yeah. Like Lee was a great lad and he misses a tackle. He jumps the line and misses Ricky. And Ricky then pushes through. Does that still haunt you guys, like the guys that are in the team? Uh, like... Haunt. Haunt's a strange word. I mean, there's this one of those things in the back of your Yeah. We, um, we had, like I say, had these two, there's a couple of those kind of moments, like that one. I say we we won the game. Ellery was outstanding. It was like I say an individual performance by none in the first game when we won in nineteen ninety. It was an, an unbelievable individual performance, and we went on and won that game. And we had lots of confidence. We came into the second game really confident, and it was really tight. It was a hard fought game. It was, until that last moment, it was you couldn't really pick out between the two sides. I thought we were the better side in the first game. Thought it was hard to choose a winner in the second game when you watch it back because, like I say, it was really close. It was like saying when when O'Loughlin um, scores the try off the intercept, and then I think we missed a kick from the sideline to put us um, well in front. Then it, it's and that we've got like I say nowadays if you got we're Australia inside deep inside their half. It was late in the tackle count. Yeah, we should have just been able to defend that couple of plays return a kick on the back on the next play I'll force an error because they're trying too hard and then Ricky just breaks clear and Mal scores a fantastic try but it's hard to pick a winner that we went into the last game and the scoreline's really close but we we weren't the winners in that last game we were, we were never in it and Australia t- picked it up again I think it was from that point in the second game where we were just we felt like we'd, we'd done enough to be able to to win the Ashes which is one of those points. And I think the same again in 90, I think it was 92. Yeah. When in the first game in Sydney and ET. Kept getting Martin, yeah. Oh, he catches Martin two or three times. Like Martin's away. And I reckon if there's a video ref, you guys might have got away with that one, mate. I think there's a couple uh, of <laughs> dicey ones yeah, there. That kind of stuff. Yeah. But that's, and we went into the second game. I think Australia got a little bit cocky. We went into the second game in Melbourne. In Melbourne, we, yeah. And everything just worked that day. It was Bang, 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 click. We scored tries. Chip and Chase's come off. Gary Schofield was doing what Gary Schofield does and, and it was working. So he was doing things that you would, nowadays, you'd, you'd say, what? It's just bizarre. And 90% of the time they don't work. But you, on that day, his little chips, his little grubbers, his flick passes, they all came to come work, come off and we scored a lot of points. Yeah. But like we went up to, went to Lang Park in the last game. I'm saying it's, the first time I played at Lang Park at that time as well, and it was the crowd. It was right on top of you, the old yeah, stadium. The old stadium it, was, yeah. it was. It was a really close game, and but again, I didn't think we were actually in the contest. We'd, we'd, we'd won so well, we'd sort of like poke the beast kind of thing. <laughs> it's hard, mate. <laughs> three games, not, yeah. It was close, and we were we were 
but we were beaten. I was I was beaten up after that game. I was in bits. I think I remember Bradley Clyde had an absolutely wow of the game. I think he did still, like I say, he was all over the place. He, he was mopping up, he was making yards quite. He was just a little bit different that day. Yeah. And that was when it sort of it sort of drifted away a little bit after that series. Again, we came came out of that and never really got that. It's, that it's true. That foothold in a test series again. But what I wanted to say is that that start of 94 because game one, Sean Edwards gets sent off and you guys hang on 8-4. And that's to this day one of the most gutsiest performances I've seen by an English team. What was it about that squad and that game that brought you guys together? Because the guys that you were playing on the opposite side, Australia, they had everyone. So to think that you guys were able to only to keep them to four points with 12 players, how'd you do it? Wish I could bottle it, I don't know. Like I say it was one of those kind of days where Wembley had that effect on us as well. It was that and it, it changed a little bit after that, the big stadium. Yeah. But yeah, you gotta understand that what Wembley was to to you as a player going and trying to get into a Challenge Cup final and what it was to the crowds that went down there. Yeah. You got that and it's it's hard to know what it was that within the feeling of the group. But we were just just determined that day. I think, well, like I say, my memory. Anyway, I think he was a coach that day as well. Yeah, I think he was. Coach. Yeah, I think he was. Yeah, he was. And Sean got sent off as well. I, again, yeah, for was, Bradley Clyde, he got him with the coat hanger. Just, it, it, yeah, it was a great shot, wasn't it? It wasn't what? It'd still be bad now if it was not that kind of like <laughs> But no, it was something in that group, like I say, we just dug in. And I think it was built on those number of years leading into that point. Where we just dug in and and I've been I've been I've been in one one real game like that that game and where Australia probably felt the same was when we played Sheffield in the nineteen eighty eight Challenge Cup final. Yep. Where you always thought that we're going to win this in a minute, we're going to win this in a minute, we're going to win, and obviously and then you lost. And there's only five minutes left on the clock. And yeah. You're thinking, Shit. I think Australia had that feeling about them where they thought Sean got sent off. They made lots of errors. I think, they'd like I say, I think a couple of times, like I say, Bobby Linder was in that side as well. I think Bobby Linder made, was it Bobby Linder? I can't remember who was in that, but they were making mistakes that they would never usually make. They were running into each other, they would make, they were dropping ball, they wouldn't. And it's in that frustration was, and the clock seemed to move a little bit quicker yeah. as it does in those moments when you're behind. And we were just a determined group that was just stuck in for that day. I think it got a little bit worse the next time. We went to Old Trafford again the next game and it was ended up being a bit of a flogging. <laughs> Mate, in Australia, you know, for State of Origin, they talk about these grand, you know, bonding sessions to get the boys together, especially because everyone's from different clubs. Did you guys have something similar before the Ashes test and your tours to New Zealand and things? We'd, we'd have a drink, but we wouldn't do... There was nothing epic about it. See, I was never, I was never a real big drinker or as well, so I was yeah. never somebody that drove that it was not it wasn't in my background I didn't really drink properly to like in my I'd say early 20s so I wasn't a big drinker as a teenager I saw it as I say that and that probably comes from my background as well of what I saw yeah. growing up but, yeah. so I was never a big drinker and what I I understood about how to get the best out of myself was to look after myself so I, I wasn't I was never into that kind of culture we never we never had anything that way there was there were groups I'm not saying it didn't happen. 
just <laughs> I wasn't part of that. Yeah. But we, we never, it was never something I needed to to feel like I was part of the group. It was just something that it, it did happen. We'd, like I say, we'd have Monday clubs and we'd have drinking sessions. And I'd, not that I, I knew about them, but I maybe called in a couple of times, but I wasn't part of that yeah, yeah. drinking element that, that drove. And it's, there's a lot. There's a lot of myths around those kind of things as well, and they're great to to really grow and say that that's what you need. You need to care about the people you you want to go to war with, and you need to care about what you're doing it for. But you've also got to make some choices that are about for yourself. Yeah, and that's a lot of the time. And, and you can you can say, "Am oh, I? Uh, we, 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 we need to bond." And I don't think bonding means to be go out and get absolutely pissed together, does it? Really? It's yeah, not. absolutely not. But it did happen. There was there was that culture without without doubt that was a big part in lots of clubs. But again, I the team I played in and was massively successful with. Mm. There were some drinkers in that group. Or not, I want to say drinkers, not bad drinkers. They like to drink and they went out in small groups. But it wasn't like a whole team or a massive part of that group that did all those things together. Yeah. Now, massive moment for you, 95, because World Cup final, Sean Ed- Sean, I think Sean Edwards was injured, so you you become captain, right? So yep. you're one of two people, English people, to ever captain a World Cup final at Wembley, correct? Am I getting this right? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. How did that kind of change you in terms of your own, you know, leadership? Like, how did that change you and involve you in terms of your leadership stance? And then also, what effect did that have on your career becoming the England captain? First question, I, I, I always felt as myself as somebody that was in that position to lead anyway. So it wasn't something that I felt like I had to change in the way I played the game. I was a, I was more of a doer than a, than a sayer mm. kind of thing. So it was a lead by example kind of stuff and tried to do the right thing by the group. Um, on the field and on the training field, say the as a back row, that tactical awareness. Our leaders in within our organisation on those kind of days. I think Bob Gilding was the halfback that day. Mike Sean was so the people on the field that gave us direction um, were always those people. But I say as of like the character within the group and as the somebody that wanted to show how to step forward and confront challenges that was always part of who I was anyway so I don't I don't think it changed me that much I felt like I'd always evolved in that I'd, I'd been through a system where captain teams that I'd been involved with all the yeah. way through and I end up being vice captain Sean gets he gets poorly early in the rounds and doesn't really recover late on in the in the tournament so I keep hold of that captaincy how does it affect well the other person that's led England out at Wembley in a World Cup final is Bobby Moore. Okay. So we're the only two people I say, and it's it's, it's a pub quiz question, really. <laughs> Nobody ever gets it because what, they they won and we lost. And I think that's the hardest thing about that 95 um, final is that it's it's so easy to understand what happens when you you don't win a major tournament because nobody really remembers. Yeah. So nobody ever, like I say, unless you look deep into it or you look into who was involved in that game. And I know people didn't even recognise that we played in the World Cup final at Wembley in 95. Yeah. People that were involved in the game can't remember those things because we lost. You lost. Push it to one side. 
move on to what's next. So it didn't really have a massive effect on on my career and the way it was moving as well. I was already I was already at the Auckland Warriors at the time. Yeah. And the biggest disappointment I had was that when in '96 when we went on tour, so Great Britain went on tour again, mm. and uh, Andy Farrell was made the captain of the okay. side, and I put it. And he was a better captain than I was anyway. He was a better player than I was. But I felt that I'd, I'd earned the right to stay as the, the national captain, yeah. um, captain that side. So it hurt a little bit. But it didn't change who how, how I went about my game and how I played. But that was like that was Phil Larder's choice at that time. And it was it was the best choice. Like I say, he was the, he was the best bloke for the job. Like I say, and he went on to, to do amazing things on yeah. the back of that. You know, we talked about before about the winter to summer in the English Super League. But, you know, you arrived mid-season in 95 with the Warriors. Before you signed with the Warriors, like a lot of English players over that time, obviously your season finishes early, so then you can kind of play that back half yeah. of the season in Australia. Did anyone else show interest in you prior to the, the New Zealand signing? Yeah, I almost went to Manly the year before, and that was the link between... Oh, Graham Lowe. Lowe, yeah, um, and like stuff, and there was a couple of things there, and there was a couple of interest in um, Canterbury as well the year before that. So it was a little bit, a couple of years before that, and I, again, I, it was nice. I, I spoke to the coaches at that time, and John Morney, and he just didn't think it was right for me at that stage to to not have a pre-season. So I was just establishing myself, and it would have. It might have hurt me going over like a, um, in 80, 89, 90, 91 yep. to do another pre-season. So I'd always, I'd always, I'd always love to try and change completely. I swing, swing across. So that the last couple of years, I was thinking about what it would be like to go and play in Australia. And I, I, I feel really fortunate in the sense that I was part of something at the start of it. It was one of those like, when you get sold this this dream, and it was it was the, the Auckland Warriors at that stage was it was a fantastic idea, and it's grown into what it's grown into today. Yeah. But at that time, being putting a team from another country <laughs> in such a major competition and flying four hours every other week and being part of that, it was like oh, this is. Who does this in the world? Who's who's involved in this kind of stuff? And obviously, on the back of that, John was going to be the coach. Ian Roberts, Ian, um, uh, um, Ian Robertson, yeah, yeah the, the CEO. Yep. Spent time with him, and like I say that the whole idea of it and the whole dream of it was was fantastic. It was it was an amazing part, to be part of that. Like I say I regret. One thing as well, well, I've got a couple of things about the time, and one of them being that I wasn't able to walk out in that first game against Brisbane. Yeah, that was I just huge. watched it on TV. Yeah. So I, I came later on in that year, and and when I saw that first game, I was like, oh, wow, I wish. And I said, we just missed out on the finals that year for a technicality. Two points. Yeah, you got two points taken yeah, off. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we got two points taken off us because we'd used an extra player and a substitute that. Didn't make a it difference. Was, yeah, yeah. It just didn't make a difference at all to anything. But it was a great experience to be part of that. And if I'm, I'm honest, if if I could have stayed, I would like I say I, I had I had two daughters from a 
previous marriage yep. that was still in this country and I, I wasn't able to get to so I kept coming backwards and forwards and it was only after the time that I decided that I couldn't spend any more time away from them I needed to be home and that's what brought me back I didn't okay. I didn't leave for any other reason apart from that the other I wish and it was great for the game and it was fantastic for players but I wish now that I'd not been involved or part of the Super League War okay, because it just completely obliterated those two years like I say, the season, the first season I joined halfway through, it was a, it was a great experience. I enjoyed it, yeah. And and then I was ready to to go, go. again, and yeah. the, the game it just got pulled to pieces. I was like in my mid twenties, thought I had a voice. I've, I got dragged into a couple of debates about it and what was good for the game. Probably said things that I shouldn't have, didn't have the right to say, or became sort of the, the standing at the front because of the experiences of playing for Great Britain and yeah. being one of those major tra- transition people. And the game getting delayed, the, the game splitting, the game not really knowing what its identity was for those first. And the great thing that came out of it was the NRL. The, like, as you see the competition now, what it's evolved into. Yeah. But for me, in those two years, two and a half years that I was involved as a player, it was just stop, start, stop, start. We... We were due to start and then the competition got delayed. There was a court hearing. I went to Sydney and I sat in a courtroom while there was a debate going on. I was yeah. one of those people that took photographs. It was one of those kind of, when I look back and I go, I wish I could have just gone and played, spent three years there or four years or whatever it could have been and just played. But I didn't. I got I got dragged into a bit of a shit fight. Sometimes I played okay. Sometimes I didn't really find. And whenever, coming out of 95, and in the 90s, coming out of 96, actually, on the back of the tour to Australia, uh, to New Zealand with Great Britain. It wasn't a great tour for the country itself, but for I played pretty well. I'd scored in every test. I'd had a really good series, even though we'd been beaten badly. And I was really excited about the following year. And we started the fall, and the following year didn't start properly. There was delays. It was just, it was all over. The competition was all over the place. Uh, it was just, it was frustrating yeah. to say that I didn't, I don't think I ever gave my best and I don't think the competition in Australia saw the best of me mm. in those years. Do you encourage, you know, you, you've been coaching for a while, you know, I'm sure a lot of young English players probably come up for advice in terms of going to Australia. Is that something that you, you do encourage for them to oh, test themselves? It made me who I am. And I, I, again, I can regret those things about the game and that, but I, I moved to Australia and it made me a better person, I think. I think yeah. it made me, it gave me an insight and used used the tools that I had to see things that I could never dream of seeing. Mm. I mean, somebody, I was paid to go and live in Mission Bay <laughs> in Auckland. <laughs> I mean, it's that, like I say, I was I'm a kid from Salford that played in Wigan. I'm living, there's an extinct volcano there outside of the opposite <laughs> where I'm living. Uh, like I say, and I get on a ferry and I can go to a, an island called Waiheke Island and I can have lunch there and get on a boat and come back and be home in a day. And like, I can drive down a coast and hardly see a car and see beautiful beaches. Yeah. I can drive over the other side and see wild Pacific again. And it was just one of those things where I wouldn't have done if I'd not been a rugby league player and I'd not had a chance to and somebody asked me to come and play for their team in another part of the world I know probably 90% or even more 
will say the same thing. As you speak to John Bateman now, it's probably the yeah. I know it's coming back, but it's probably that's really family as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the same with Sam Tompkins, who went did went over to Auckland and enjoyed loved New Zealand as he does. Mm. But not not doing that would have would have made me a completely different person. Yeah, totally agree. Come out of your comfort zone, like say, I'd, I'd, and Wigan were coming to that point in their life as well. Like I could sense it in '95, where there was, change, there was a certain change coming. There's a cultural change in the team around you. And you had to either, and you couldn't influence it enough to be able to get the right kind of people, and the right kind of things going on. Yeah, there was a change in the game when it was transitioning across from summer to winter. '95, when I won the Man of Steel, we'd won every trophy as well. We'd we'd won the World Club against um, Brisbane at the beginning of the year we yep. won the Regal Trophy we won the we won the league we won the Challenge Cup we won and we won to <laughs> Premiership Final we played Leeds in a Premiership Final we beat Leeds by 60 odd points in the final it was a point where what else is there to do now and it was like well I just don't challenge myself into something completely new and that's what was exciting about moving then all right, Dennis, last subject, coaching. Now, you've mentioned a couple of outstanding coaches. In terms of you developing your own style, who do you think you had the biggest influence on kind of the man that you had become in coaching now? Oh, well, I was really fortunate uh, to, to work with Mike Gregory yep. um, before he passed away. And like I said, I was his assistant coach when he was head coach at Wigan. Mm-hmm. And I took over from him at that time. I said he was he was an inspirational character. He was a great leader of men. He knew he knew the pulse of the team, he knew the heartbeat of the team, but he also knew his stuff. So he always had the ability to have knowledge about what he was trying to talk about. But he also had the insight to say, I'll go and find that out. He wasn't afraid to say, Yeah, you may be right. So it wasn't about that dictator coach that wouldn't take any any questions or anybody else having any more knowledge than I did you, like I say you've, you've got to understand your subjects like knowledge is power in coaching yeah. but you've also got to be smart enough to know that players can see through the fact that when you're talking shit yeah. <laughs> most of them have got a good insight into knowing that <laughs> so don't talk don't talk too much shit be willing to put your hands up and say well I got it wrong but I can get it right if you if you do it this way or you do that way. Yeah. So Mike was a real influential figure. Again, I go back to a mentor that I had, with, which is Andy Goodway. Like I said, there was lots, lots of positives about, and Andy coached Great Britain as well. Yeah. Andy Goodway coached yep. Great Britain. Like I say, he's still one of my best friends now. And his, 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 his I learned more from his mistakes than, than from what he did. They say, because he, he did things in, in, in a certain way that he regrets. And, I was I was involved in a lot of the stuff that he was around, but his understanding and his his work ethic on how to understand the game was essential to how I spent those formative years in in coaching. Yeah, Dennis- so I fell into coaching in a sense of like I was I still had two years left to play in a playing contract. Mm. It was salary salary cap um, issues at Wigan at that time. It was Stewie Raper, and, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, and. So I sat. I went, I went into an office, and I, me being me, I'd, I'd sort of sat down and I'd worked out there's going to be some real changes as well. So the substitution real change was just about to happen. So it was going to go from four to eight, and 
how I could evolve. Like I said, I'd had a knee reconstruction, I'd had an ankle reconstruction, I had shoulder reconstruction in three or four years leading into that. So I'd sort of broken up a little bit in my late thir- uh, mid um, early 30s. So I'd, but then I was just starting to, because I always worked quite hard at my game and also my rehab. And, and I've, we came out of the a year that, I think it was, I can't remember now, 2007, I think it was. So I came out of that year and I went away and I went, right. So I sat down, I looked at the real changes, I looked at myself and I tried to change myself from being a back row, hard-working back rower yeah. to a middle unit player that maybe put a little bit more weight on. Still had good foot speed. and I, only, I didn't have to play 18 minutes anymore. I could play in short minutes. Could I be a little bit more, um, but a leadership role, but have a bit more impact with yeah. the way I played off the bench. So I, I worked all this out, what I need to do to pre-season, a couple of kg I need to do, how I need to adapt my style of what it's run long distances, having a really big engine to now being a little bit more dynamic yeah. and what, how I could enhance the team and what I could give to that team. So I worked all this out, <laughs> went to see Stuart at the beginning of the year. So I sat down, went into his office, like the office in the corner at Wigan at the time. So I said, he went, oh, yeah, um, before you start, so I've got this paper, I put it down, and he said, before you start, he said, um, I think you should retire. So that sort of blew my fucking legs off straight away. Like, and I was like, well, what What do you mean? He said, well, we've got some issues with the cat, but I've got some young kids that can come through. Still like on Stephen Wilde, Simon Hart, and young, young lads. Um, what's your thoughts? Or, or do you want to move on? So I think they were just looking. I think he was looking for a way to kind of move me on. Yeah. But I had in my contact as well that after two years I would go into working with the um, academy. So if I did finish the contracts at Wigan, there was also a subcontract as you did. You wrote in those days that I would take on some kind of role within the club if I didn't want to carry on playing or they didn't want me to carry on playing. Yeah. So I went away and I had a good think about it. Like I say, I was I'd been pretty busted for two or three years. I'd, I hadn't played that well here before but I'd worked out the reasons why and it was you know, I, I went away and I went do I start something or do I finish something so do I go off and it's one of those things where you think maybe I should have played for a couple more years yeah. I was fit enough I was strong enough and yeah and it's something I can't ever get back so I try not to worry too much about it but if every time I talk to a player now it's like and they talk about retiring go, you've got to be really sure about this because you can't go back it's too hard to go back the other way. Once you stop, yeah. you can't wait six months and then decide to play again. It's just gone. So I I, was, I, I decided to resign and I'd enjoyed some coaching. I'd worked with a couple of um, sides. I'd been on some national camps. Yeah. So David Waite was involved at that time yeah. within the English thing and he was running some national camps. Mm-hmm. So I'd done some coaching with some 16, 15-year-olds and I, I enjoyed it. It was something that I'd really taken to through the kind of player that I was and the leadership skills that I had. So I took over Wigan's, I was offered the job of Wigan's head of head of the academy, but running in eight, the under 18s. Okay. So on my own side. <clears throat> and, you know, it was exciting and I regretted it for a little bit when the teams came back and the players were playing. Yeah. It was painful. It was painful being around the place. But I went off and I went back to college. I went to university, studied sports management. And I was taking another couple of courses. I was doing a psychology course. I was doing, I started to just pull all the things that I had. Yeah. Started to re-educate myself and feel to this day, very, very fortunate 
that I've had the chance to go from being 32 when I finished playing to 16 when I started, finished playing at 32, but then never lost a changing room. So I didn't play, but I still had the smell, I still had the, t- I still had the sound, yeah. and I had that. I've had that for the last 19 years. So I've never lost that, and I feel like it's never really been a job. It's always just been something that I did. It's my, my vocation, I'm just a, a rugby coach, or a, a person who's involved in sport. Yeah. Do you and, do, you do a lot of, like, because just recently we are watching that, I'm not sure if you've seen it, that Tottenham Hotspur series, and a lot of it has the background of, you know, Jose, Jose Mourinho, and just his psychology and how he gets players up. Is that something that kind of you really interests you when you go – like beyond what you've learnt and kind of pick the brains of other sports and other people within your your peers and things like that? Yeah, you you work on that. And I think that that's at that top end as well is again you have to know your stuff. But you're dealing with the elite and the elite spend a lot of time. So they have to be coached and they have to be talked to in a certain way. Mm. And you work with them. But when I coach Wigan for the first time, it's that kind of stuff. So I can tell Andy Farrell how to play the game. Yeah. He could do things that I could never do. He can pass the ball further or kick the ball off both feet. He could do things. I'm not going to tell him how to be a player. I can I can encourage him in certain aspects of his play. I can tell him he can do certain things better than he's doing because of his mental attitude. But that relationship, and I believe, I, I totally believe that being the right time at the right place with the right group of people makes great coaches. Yeah, Because I've seen some fantastic coaches that haven't been at the right club, that haven't had the right players that nobody knows about. Yeah. So there's lots of people out there and, and Jose Mourinho, yeah, you, you, you love him for how abrupt he is, but I also, they, they don't really talk to a lot of the people out there that can't stand the guts of the man because of, yeah. he's got rid of them. So there's lots of elements to coaching that are so different, but you've got to get people to want to follow you. And I, and I honestly believe it's not, it's not what I know. It's what you think I know or you believe that I know that's important. Yeah. So you've got to trust me to the bones, really. I think that's the hardest thing. I say you talk to any, probably talk to 90%. There's a, there's a, there'll be a percentage out there that won't believe you. Well, you talk to the people that work with Craig Bellamy and they'll, they'll love him. But that's why they know, they know what he is. They know how grumpy he is. They know that what he's got. But he gets the people on side first yeah. and then he gives them and he enhances the tools that they've got to make them better players within his system. What about for yourself? The psychology, the psychology of the psychology of top end sport is great yeah. because you won't run into a, a league coach that doesn't know his stuff. They all know the stuff. They've all been on the courses. They've all read the books. And they say there's millions of books out there now. There's thousands <laughs> of podcasts telling you how yeah, to be yeah. resilient, how to grow leadership skills, how to, but actually implement them face to face to be able to create a relationship that makes it work to find a way of being trustworthy so you can gain trust. Those are skills that you can't just have by reading a book. You've got to enhance them and work with people. My coaching philosophy is built on people, purpose, performance. Like I say, yep. find the right people, give them purpose, and drive their performance. So those kind of real simple aspects are, are pulled from different areas. But at the, at the forefront of everything that I've always worked on is that the most important aspect of any club and then in relationship by the people. Yeah. How do you, like last question, how do you prepare yourself? Because for most coaches, 95% of you, at some stage of your career, you're going to get sacked. So yeah. do you have a think, do you think about this before you get into it? Like how's that psychology work for yourself? Well, I don't. I've never have. Like I say, I'm, I'm a, 
I'm a great believer in that. You, sh- I'd rather, I'd rather have got hurt and, and loved and never loved at all. It's yeah. one of those. But I'm, I'm one to men. I mean, if you want to, if you want to do me over, then you do me over. That's the way it works. But I'm not, I'm not going to hold that against you. Like say, I think they, again, if you come back to the first part of this chat. I was angry for a long time as a kid. I was angry late into my teens and I was angry early into my early 20s. But I think that was because of where I'd come from and what I'd been. And I realised it didn't help me. It doesn't it, to, hold, to hold grudges, to have mm. two bigger regrets, doesn't help me moving forward. The lessons that I can learn from, but the point I have to do is I have to be willing to hurt myself and sacrifice myself for the greater good of myself and the people around me. So I will take a step into the unknown. And if you want to do me over, then you can. And I'll just find another way of moving forward. I like I, I like it. I'd rather, if I'm going to fall, I'd rather just keep falling forward. Yeah. So it's, and that's, I think you can't go into anything thinking, oh, I'm going to get hurt here. Yeah. Because you never really fully engage. You can't go into a job thinking, oh, they're going to sack me. If I don't, if I don't do really well, they're going to sack me. You want to do really well anyway. Yeah. That's why you're taking the job. You don't take it thinking, and anybody tells you different is telling lies. If they've got plan B of when they're going to sack me, that's what your agent's for. If your agent goes in and he writes a contract, especially in football now, which has an exit strategy with how much money they're going to pay you. So you speak to any agent now, that's one of those first, it's, a, it's the weirdest kind of situations ever where right, we want you to do the job. Brilliant. But, right, okay. Then your man walks in and he goes, right, what are you going to give him when he's sacking? Like, wait a minute, wait a minute. He's not even started the job yet. But that's, that's the kind of things you hear about all, all these all these elite coaches in football in this country especially have a sacking clause in their contract and that to me is just so weird like, well they've already got one, job. one foot out the door don't they and that's why it turns like it does so when I like I was I coached at Witness for eight years mm. we didn't win in fact we got beat more than we were but what I convinced the board was that we were getting better. Yeah. And it's a level of investment they were putting in. So my job was to create an environment where it wasn't about the scoreboard. It was about what does the club look like as it moves forward. It's been from 12 years of not being a professional organisation, so a semi-pro organisation for 12 years into a full-time organisation. And progressively, I showed that we got better. We didn't win because only one team wins. Yeah. But we improved up until the point where it felt like sponsors and everything else, that it couldn't work anymore. And as you say, and I, I, again, I feel really fortunate in the fact that I've been doing it for probably 16, 17 years at that stage. And that's the first time I've been sacked. Yeah. So I left, I left the Wigan job as it, uh, when um, Ian Millward took over and I became an Ian Millward assistant. Yeah. So, and then I left because I just, I just couldn't work in that environment that was being created at that time. Mm. And I could see things that I tried to work through with Mike Gregg and what we tried to put in place, just being completely broken up with no apparent reason. So I decided to leave and I went and joined the rugby union side. And that I believe that the rugby union side of things was when I really started to have to coach. Yeah, I, I really had to, I had to dig deep into myself. I'd never played rugby union. I'd never been involved in rugby union. I went down there and I didn't try and sell them some great white hope of like, because I'm a rugby league man and rugby union needs rugby league people. Yep. I said, this is what I can do. This is what I'm good at. And this is how I think I can help your players. And I was very fortunate again 
to meet a fellow called Dean Ryan, who was the director of rugby, who had a massive belief in what I'd done, what I did. Yeah. Gave me an opportunity. I became his assistant coach. Then I, the rugby union then got in contact with me, put me straight onto one of their coaching courses. Yep. So I went from being a rugby league head coach with a senior coaching band to being, in two years' time, being a level five, fully qualified RFU coach. Wow. One of the, the one with their top badge. They put me on that course that went through that went through Loughborough. So I did that course and came out of it. Spent another couple of years working with some great people at Gloucester. And then decided that actually, if I want to take the next step and be in charge of an organisation, I had to go back to my roots. Yeah. I had to go back to my real core of who I am. And that's when I was looking. I was looking for a job in rugby league. I almost became an assistant at Leeds. I was working closely with them, London at the time, and looking at their job. And then Witness just jumped out and offered me an opportunity to take them into Super League. Wow! And it had a feeling of that Auckland Warriors kind of thing again, where you were taking something that was completely broken, yeah, and been worked hard to put together, and then turn it completely around and making it into a professional organisation. Mm. My ambition always was to get that team into the top four and into a final. Mm. Whether we win or we lose, that demand, those are the two things. And we didn't ever, we didn't get that. We got to a semi-final once, we'd made the top eight two or three times. But it was, wasn't was to be there because, just because it wasn't to be. Yeah. Amazing journey, but mate. Now I've got three rapid fire ones just to finish. The first one, just during your career, was there a player that you played against that you didn't get to play with that you would have liked to have played with? Probably, yeah. There's quite a few. Brad Clyde, Lowe Daly. Those are two, two, two standout <laughs> ones that you look at that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Glenn Lazarus. I liked the way Glenn Lazarus played as well. I saw Glenn was one of those kind of real outstanding front rowers that you knew you could get on the back of. Like someone like myself. When he carries the ball and he plays the ball quick, you know you're going to get a break, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> you get a line break <laughs> on the back of those kind of things, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'd probably, I'd looking at those Australians, it's not, there wasn't anybody really in in this country at that time because we could probably had all the best players yeah. playing with all the best players. We had a lot of the really good players. And even the good ones then, I played with internationally. So the real outstanding ones I played in this country, I played internationally with. I was around them then. It was only those competition people on the back of that. Like I say, I was really fortunate in the sense that I got a chance to play with Stephen Kearney. Yeah, at the Warriors. Like I say, yep. like I say or the Warriors, like I say, he's like, say he's, he's like my brother from another mother kind of <laughs> We both played in the back row and he's he was just, yeah, he was a fantastic player. And he actually, he, he, he broke my cheekbone the first time I met him. <laughs> well, properly. He played in a test match at, Hawk, in a, at Wembley in New Zealand. Yeah. He was only a young kid. And I was I was actually carrying the ball and he hit me in the face with his poor arm. And I was he just stuck his arm out and smashed my cheekbone. It was only when I went and joined him at the Auckland Warriors, he was like, Oh I hope you remind him of it all the time. <laughs> oh, he, oh, he, oh he reminded him, don't worry about that. He's like, but like I say he's he's one of my like we don't we don't speak every week, but we speak regular and he's like I say he's he's like I say he's a fantastic human being. Yeah, for sure, mate. You know what? You know who reminds me so much of you? When Ryan Hoffman came on the scene, it was funny because he obviously played at Wigan and he played at New Zealand like yourself as well. But 
he was when he first jumped on the scene. Obviously, he's a lot. He's a little bit just. He's just finished. Obviously, his career. But when he first jumped on the scene, the first person I thought of was, was yourself because you both kind of ran those good lines on the edge. Had you could you know offload, you could ball play a little bit, and you had a bit of speed. So he's definitely someone who always reminded me of yourself. Oh, God, well, that's a nice. Like I say I watched Ryan play here at Wigan, and he was sensational. So he was one of those things that Mads, when Mads brought Ryan over, like I say, he had a massive transformation on this team. So if you're going to put me in that category, that's nice. <laughs> Not Ryan was a, yeah, he's a, he's a pretty good player. Don't think he was that good, but he was a good player. Not as good as you, mate. But uh, the next question I was going to ask <laughs> that's was... Why I've, got that t- I've got that T-shirt that says, the older I get, the better I was. <laughs> like a fine wine, buddy. Next, next question was like the flip side. So today's game, English Super League, NRL, if you watch a little bit of that, is there a player that stands out that you go, wow, I would have really liked to have played with? Esco is one of those obvious ones. Yeah. I'd love to have played a game with Cameron Smith or Cooper Cronk. Someone like, yeah, like I say, running a line off, someone addicted to line like Cooper does. That's like I said, I would get the guy. The beauty about what I got out of the game was playing with Andy Gregory. Yeah. Because nobody could do what Andy Gregory could do that time. That Andy Gregory could pass the ball while he was running fast. And that's a really, sounds really simple, but it's a hard It's skill. hard, yeah. So he used to dig into the line before anybody ever talks about digging into the line. So Andy Gregg would run really, and he would pull people in and made my job really easy running outside. And I think playing outside Cooper Cronk would have been something yeah. pretty special to be able to do as well. Like that, that, that would have, and, Having coached against Cameron Smith, one of coached for um, England in the World Cup, and looks at it, it's like watching his games and watching how he moves and what he does. Like I say you would. He's a just, magician. Yeah. yeah, you would. You would love to be in a side with him. Anybody would love to play in that team with a player of that caliber. It's not. Like I say, and I was again. I was fortunate to to play in the team with Brandy. Craig uh, yeah. Alexander was right. at the Warriors at the time, and. And he's one of the most talented people I've ever seen in a rugby field. He could do things with a rugby ball. So fast, so too. At, train, at training, they'd do stuff with kicking game, what he'd do with a bias. Like, say, it was like, he'd stand there and go, wow, like I've just been pretending you've actually been playing this game. And that kind of stuff, really. Was like, but so, yeah, I was fortunate enough to that. So those kind of players, I've been really fortunate enough to be able to say that I've played with. Yeah. And they're in the same category as you Cooper Cronks and he Cameron Smiths and you wanted to look at that and to play in a side with someone like like say Billy Slater or Tedesco at the moment would be pretty special yeah Dennis is there anyone in the because obviously the NRL has been very fortunate picking out some of the really good players like Johnny Bateman Whitehead you know Hodgson Canberra's been really good at it obviously they've got Georgie Williams this week this year as well is there anyone right now in the Super League that stands out for yourself and you go yeah, I think you, you should go test yourself in the NRL right now. I think uh, the kid has just gone to Canterbury. Oh, Luke um, Thompson. Yeah, like Luke Luke was one of those kind of players that you looked at last year and you thought, yeah, you need to have a go there as well. Yeah. Um, like I say, Sutton. I saw Sutton a couple of years ago and I spoke to – he's one of those – Canberra do really well because of the guy uh, there that works in England and close to – um, Ricky Stewart and he seems to find these players huh. and pick them out he can pick well. he can pick someone Jesus he can pick them all yeah he's picked I think I think um, also aligning him with the right coach yeah I mean John Bateman works well because I think Ricky works well with John yeah 
John's a pretty, like I say, he's a pretty different kind of human being. <laughs> so, and like, and I think Ricky's found the way with that. Yeah. George, George was always that player that was. And, it, and it's, it's bloody cold in Canberra too special. in the winter. So they, yeah, they feel at home. <laughs> George Williams is one of those kind of stuff. I, I, you put me on the spot there as well. On the top of my head, it's one of those, it's one of those tough ones where there's, there's quite a number of young kids at the moment without, can't really dig out a few names, but. There's plenty of there's plenty of high quality people mm. within this organisation and within the, the team over here. We're looking for that challenge of what the next level is. Yeah, and I think that's I think at the moment the NRL is seeing that and they're over here and they're looking at all these youngsters and there's there's a num- quite a number of youngsters that have been dragged into that situation. I think you look through some of the lower grades, they're, in, they're looking at because the cheap option at the moment. Yeah. The dollar's pretty good. <laughs> and mm. I say you, you can find players on a minimum wage that aren't earning that much money over here because the pay's not great over here. Yeah. Low down in some of the leagues. A lot you, of talent over here at the moment. Are you amazed how it's flipped around? Like when you played kind of to go over to England, you got paid a lot better than in Australia. And then obviously with the Super League war, all of a sudden the flip side and the money that comes in in Australia is just amazing compared to what it was. We're only talking 30 years ago. Well, I, yeah. Well, i it's it's hard in this country as well. Like you see, you've got such massive diversity of opportunities at different levels, and and the game hasn't really taken the foothold that we hoped it would. Mm. Just because there's lots of other things going on in this country as well, and and out, coming out of like the NRL, of the NRL was born on that East Coast side. Like you say, you look at the fact that how strong rugby league has become in that part of the world, and the, the TV one. I'm not. Not so many of the crowds, like you said, the state of origin is fantastic, and so but the crowds aren't huge in Australia. No, not at all. There's not massive crowds, no. but there's a lot of interest in TV. TV is huge. So TV money drives yep. revenue massively. The dollars got better, the pounds got a little bit weaker. So I went to New Zealand and it was three to one. Like I said, that's a lot. That's a big difference. <laughs> you would have been the <laughs> king, mate. Shit, you would have been owning yeah. islands over there. <laughs> oh, a dollar was a dollar and a pound was a pound. It's one of those kind of things, wasn't it? But yeah, it's so that. The, the switch is that you would you went to Australia as a even the English players went to Australia did okay out of it because they got paid well and then the players that came over from Australia to England they were massively high profile ones I remember like you Wally Lewis going to Wakefield yeah and it was like say I think they mortgaged everything to get him over probably Peter Sterling <laughs> as well with Hull and like all sorts of things yeah. Brett Kenny well they were in that kind of top end of their league Brett Kenny and, and my mum and Inga went to St. Helens so like there was a but you like I say you, you, you've sunk a lot of money into it but it, when you transferred it back it seemed like a hell of a lot more money <laughs> and it actually was <laughs> well Dennis really appreciate you joining me on the show before I let you leave get following Dennis you'll find him on Twitter Bets Dennis but mate it's been an absolute pleasure thanks for all the good memories over the years too mate and uh, look forward because you're with Gateshead too now right well, no, it's called Newcastle. Newcastle. But is, it, is that still the same club? Is that what, what it was? Yeah, well, a fella called um, Seymour Curdy, who owns the Newcastle, who owns the Newcastle Falcons, the okay. Union yeah, yeah. franchise. So he he absorbed it into his organisation four or five years ago. And now they play out of Kingston Park, okay. which is um, in Kingston, just outside of Newcastle. He's got great aspirations for what he wants, the whole rugby side of his organisation to look like. Super League is the ambition. Yep. So like what 
Um, well, where are you guys now at the championship? Two years ago and, yeah, we're in League One. Okay, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so I, I, I left rugby. I, when I got lost my job at Witness, I, I settled my own company doing some consulting stuff. I do a little bit of work in squash. Okay. I mentor some squash players. I do some work in um, football where I mentor some um, heads of coaching or heads of youth in football. And I, I'm like a consultant at Newcastle at the moment. So across both the rugby union, rugby league stand stuff, but the ambition of the, the organisation is to take the league side and turn it into a super league organisation, which hopefully we can do in the next two or three years by moving them through the league. So it's it's an exciting project to be involved with at the moment. Yeah. Mate, Newcastle's a beautiful town. I've, I've been there a couple of times. The tune, oh, mate, it's the fantastic. tune's good. It's a major city. Yeah. Major city. Well, mate, you, you've got a new supporter. I'm going to go. St- <laughs> I'm going for you guys yeah. now. Hang on. Keep punching, mate. That's what we want. <laughs> well, mate, all the best of luck with the Newcastle stuff. And, you know, you and your family stay safe during COVID as well, mate. And it's been really great to catch up and take care, bud. Thank you, mate. Keep doing the good work, mate. I really enjoy your podcast. It's fantastic. And that, guys, was the final episode for the year. You know, if you did like that, share with your family and friends. Everyone out there, thank you again for a great year. Thank you for all the support, and you guys all have a Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Just remember, Talking League, that's going to be starting in February, so check out the links below if you want to subscribe early. I'll have it on this channel probably for four or five weeks before everyone needs to cross over. So do it now. Support the cause. I'd love to have you listening on that show. Plenty of league analysis and news dropping twice a week. All right, guys, you stay safe out there. I'll catch you soon. I'm Tristan Cannell, and this was Talking with TK.